Welcome to Gen Z Money, episode five. You know, we could throw all the personal finance content we want at them, but if they're not ready to make that change, then it doesn't matter what we give them. They have to be ready to make a change because if you are in a position where you're in a ton of debt and haven't paid it off yet, there's likely a reason why. And um, you have to change behaviors to change to fix the problem. Even if my jokes aren't funny What's going on, guys? Welcome to Gen Z Money, where we turn financial peace to your reality. I'm your host, James Bowman, and today with me is my co-host, Jonathan Betancourt. What is up, Jonathan? Not much, man. I'm glad to be back. Um, You know, we have a great episode ahead of us, and um, it's going to be a really, really good one. Absolutely, man. Today, we got the pleasure of interviewing Sarah Edlin, and we talked about her journey to finances. I don't want to give away her whole story, but it was really, really inspirational to hear someone, you know, put their head down and deal with their crippling crippling student loan debts and just eating that elephant one bite at a time. For sure. And um, this is definitely going to be geared towards, you know, the students in college or um, people that are familiar with the healthcare industry or transitioning into that industry. Um, And of course, with that, you know, learning or studying that in college, the uh, massive student debt that goes along with it, um, you're going to hear about a journey that was really, really rough, but it paid off so much in the end. Absolutely, man. But we don't want to give away her whole story. So let's go ahead and bring in Miss Sarah Edlin. Before we get into the interview, let's hear a quick word from today's show sponsors. Hey, Sarah, welcome to the Gen Z Money Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. I'm excited to be here. That is great. So you reached out to me on Facebook. We're, we're both in the same a bigger pockets group and you were telling me about your story about your debt payoff journey and i thought it was just so inspiring that i wanted to bring you on a podcast to hopefully give others the inspiration that they can do it thank you um yes that is also why i really want to share my story um i had Uh, a ton of debt and a ton of student loans because I went to grad school. Um, And so I had more than what's normal and I figured out how to pay it off. So I think I want to also share my story because if you just have undergrad loans from just those four years um, and you have less than I did, then hopefully you too can pay it off. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. So let's just start out at the way beginning. Where did your debt accumulation story begin? Well, I was really lucky in that my debt accumulation story really just started with grad school. I um, come from a family that was able to afford to put me through college, so I didn't have any undergrad loans. And I also was just really fearful of my credit card that I got in college. So I um, never 
fell into that trap of credit card debt like so many Americans have right now, um, really because I was just lucky in that I was scared to use it, not because of any secret formula um, that I didn't, you know, I didn't know what I was doing at the time with anything finances. So grad school rolls around and I knew, of course, to consider tuition. What I wish had happened was that my parents or my grandparents who helped pay for college kind of sat me down and they were like, this is the tuition, but this is how much we paid because of all these factors like that go into school, books, labs, fees, cost of living, food, all that stuff. So I, um, before I knew it, you know, my program was two years only, and I'm graduating school with $134,000 of student loan debt and $20,000 of which was only interest that accrued in those two years, which made me so mad. Our um, system so broken. But anyway, so that's where my um, like debt journey began was just graduating, realizing I need to start work and just freaking out about the enormity of being in six figures of debt. So let's take it back a minute. You talked about having a fear of credit card debt and seeing what it does and how it, how it can really cripple people. Can you kind of elaborate on, was that, was that a fear that you were taught by anybody or was it just something that you looked around and you realized it was really hurting people and that's what kind of kept you on the right track for that? Well, maybe I misspoke. I think at that time, I didn't realize how pervasive credit card debt was, nor did I know, like, I'm sure I knew people who had credit card debt, but I wasn't aware of it. But I grew up in a high earning family that um, maybe spent I don't know. Either they spent more than they earned or they were just really stressed about finances all the time. So I carried over that stress into my young adult life, um, just being really worried about money and um, not having enough or things being too expensive so that when I did use my credit card, it was really few and far between and I paid it off right away. Um, and I guess maybe in high school or somewhere along the lines, someone taught me that I should just pay it off, but I also just had, um, a really big fear of it from, yeah, just, I guess, um, yeah, that makes sense. And so, um, you said that you managed to make it through undergrad with no student loans. Is that correct? Yes. So. I'm curious because I see this happen a lot with uh, my generation to where they go to college um, not clear on what they want to do or what they want to be. It's mm -hmm. kind of an intermediate step. Mm -hmm. So when you started college, were you crystal clear about what you wanted to do, what you wanted your profession to be, or did you spend some of that time just dabbling in different things in order to find out what you actually wanted to do? I was a massive dabbler. I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do, but I also had a lot of family pressure to pick a career. So I ended up picking a career um, in healthcare more from the family pressure versus me like 
absolutely falling in love with the profession. And I think we'll talk a little bit about this later on, but I um, got really burnt out working in healthcare. So um, I chose a career that I thought uh, would give me the work-life balance that I wanted. Um, but I wonder now if I was felt like I could explore a little bit about a little bit more about what I want to do with my life, with work, with whatever. Like, I don't know where I would have ended up, but I'm kind of going through that right now um, because I'm taking a month off of work. I just paid off my student loans and I'm now kind of reassessing, well, what do I want going forward? Okay, so so what you're saying is um, after, so the burnout you experienced was after um, college. Don't oh, your the, burnout, the burnout I've experienced is over this past year, but um, really I just, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I chose a career in healthcare because healthcare was familiar to me um, and I needed to pick something. So I chose uh, to be an occupational therapist. Going, going back to what you just said about the, uh, you know, your family basically pressuring you to uh, quickly, you know, choose a career. Um, did the fear of debt also kind of force your decision along with that? It didn't because I was so ignorant of it and the power it holds over you. Um, I didn't realize that um, picking that career and um, the cost of school was not justified by the salary that I'd be making from that career. And so I wish that was something that I had been able to understand a little bit better. I will say that I do have this career now as an OT, and especially now that I don't have debt, it's a great paying job that I can always fall back on. So I can't necessarily say that maybe I regret being an OT because I do have this great job security right now um, if I end up going back to it. But yeah, I um, uh, I think a lot of OTs and PTs and speech therapists, we're all kind of told that the, this is a great field to go into because there are always jobs, which that part is true. But no one talks about the fact that the cost of schooling is so much more than the salaries that we make. Okay, and then let's just, I, I know you went over it a second ago and it completely went over my head. Can you just repeat how much um, how much did schooling cost from just to complete your graduate degree the last yeah. two years? So my graduate degree, I ended with $134,000 in debt and $20,000 of that was interest that accrued during the two years of my program. Holy cow, $134,000 yeah. and $20,000 of that was just interest. It's just interest that accrued while I was a full-time student in an accelerated program. So when you take out student loans to the government, they give you these like entrance and exit surveys and they teach you that you should pay off interest while you're in school. But I, and I babysat, um, I babysat in the evenings and when I had some time off between uh, semesters and whatever, but that helped fund my lifestyle. That did not approach anywhere near me being able to pay off that 
interest that was accruing. So it seems like you were pretty conscious. Um, you didn't understand the danger of debt when you took it nope. out. No idea. Bliss, maybe not blissfully. Very <laughs> ignorant about it. <laughs> okay. <Nice. laughs> yeah. So did you ever, because a lot of people, what I hear from a lot of people is, okay, I'm going to take out this student loan debt and I'm going to work my butt off for two years. And if I take out $120,000 in debt and I make $60,000 a year, I'm going to pay it off in two years. That's what I hear from a lot of people. Yeah. What was this how you were looking at it from the beginning or was this something yeah. that you just wanted to keep around as a pet for so longer? Like what was your like what was your game plan from the beginning if there was any? Yeah, so from the beginning I didn't have a game plan because you don't know what you don't know. So I still carried with me a very healthy fear of that debt and frugality. Um and I started working as a travel occupational therapist. So I was working short-term contracts in places that have staffing needs. Um, so those jobs are all over the country. You pick where you want to go, what setting you want to work in, all that stuff. And it pays a lot more than if I were to take a permanent full-time job. Um, and so I was paying as much as I could towards my student loans at the time, but I didn't have a plan. In hindsight, I could have paid them down much faster than I did with the income I was making, but I didn't know that I could like sit down, create a budget, track my spending, um, look at the like debt payoff calculators and play around with timelines. Like I didn't know any of that stuff even existed for me to search it out, you know? So I was just um, paying down as much as I could. And so I was averaging maybe between two to $3,000 a month were going towards my student loans. Yeah, um, I just, I wanted to take it back just a second. Um, it's a little bit off topic, but um, you, you were going to school full-time, correct? Yes. And you did say that you were doing babysitting on the side. Um, mm -hmm. I, I want to ask, um, how were you able to manage um, doing both of those at the same time? Because I feel like a lot of people that are in college um, that have full-time schedules, um, they probably either don't know how to manage their time or, you know, they're, they're either stressed out with classes or, you know, um, things of that nature. So, um, how were you able to manage your time uh, doing both? So my first, I don't remember exactly when in my two years of grad school I started. It certainly wasn't the first semester. Maybe it was towards the end of that, the end of my first full year in school that I started babysitting. Because what happens is that in my grad program for occupational therapy, we have clinicals where we go out into the field and we're students and we have supervising therapists kind of teaching us and guiding us. And we have different levels of that. So as I was doing more clinical work and less school work with that the insane workload of projects and papers and tests and all that, I was upping the hours I was babysitting um, when I was doing more clinicals. When I was full on in a semester with, I don't even remember how many classes, I was babysitting maybe once or twice a week most for just a couple hours in the evenings. Um, but I really focused, I really spent a lot of time babysitting when I was doing clinicals. And 
I don't know why, but for some reason in our accelerated two-year program, we also had an entire summer off, which meant the semesters were more chaotic. But when I had the summer off, I was working between 40 and 50 hours a week babysitting for two different families. That's really good. Um, and the reason I wanted to ask that was because, like I said, I feel like um, a lot of people probably struggle with managing their time in college or, you know, if they're going to school full time, they probably don't even think about getting a job on the side or, you know, doing a side hustle of that nature. So um, I feel like if, you know, people can learn how to manage their time like you have and actually, you know, try and put the effort to, you know, do a side hustle, do a side job, make some extra income. Um, and they know about, you know, trying to pay off debt while in college, or at least trying to get the interest. Um, I think that will also help a lot of people accelerate their debt payoff. Totally. And I think more people need to know about the rate of student loan interest accrual. So you, if you're in school and you're working a side job or whatever, specifically targeting your interest, then you need to be making those payments every week, not every month, because so much interest accrues if you wait 30 whole days between payments. But if you take the amount of money that you would pay in the 30 days and divide it by four, you're going to save yourself so much interest that won't be accruing. That is such a great tip. Okay, Sarah. So do you ever remember that one point in time, the turning point, the time you decided, you know what, enough is enough. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. And you decided that these debts had to go. Yes, I think I will remember that moment. I think it will be forever like burned into my brain um, because it was just such a pivotal moment in my life that's launched me in such a positive direction. Um, I mean, like I had touched on before, I had a uh, unhealthy fear of my finances and of my debt, and I didn't know what I didn't know, and I didn't know how to manage it. And then now fast forward, pandemic breaks out, I'm working in healthcare, um, but um, I tend to come to, uh, I, I guess I'll just say, I come to Reno every ski season and I create my work schedule around ski season. So that means that I'm working per DM shifts. So I make more than if I were to work full time, but I have a non-traditional schedule and I don't have access to like sick days, PTO, health insurance, et cetera. So I'm working per DM and COVID breaks out and I, um, at some point, and being told that I need to start seeing COVID patients, despite the fact that I don't have any sick days, hazard pay, nothing from my employer. And this was before the vaccines came out. So I, of course, we had PPE. I didn't mind working with COVID patients. But if I got sick with COVID and I was out for a couple of weeks or a month or who knows, my employer wouldn't care. They're not paying my bills. I am. So I remember that my, um, I'm kind of freaking out. I'm rushing to apply for jobs, like even at just like Costco, like anything that I could work part-time at that would give me sick days because of my situation with my healthcare job. Um, and during that, that was November of 2020. So, you know, a few months after COVID, that started in March. And um, 
I'm sitting in my apartment and one of my best friends sends me a, po a podcast episode um, from this podcast called Bigger Pockets Money. And it was the episode she sent me. I don't remember exactly. I'd have to look back at her texts. But it was the story of a woman who just had a single solo woman like me um, who had a ton of debt and managed to pay it off and get, oh, I remember the episode. And she um, was able to... Uh, uh, create enough wealth in her life that she could retire. And she wasn't solo. She had a partner and they, I think they were only in their forties, maybe when they started. And I remember thinking, wow, like this woman in her forties got her debt paid off and hustled and then was able to retire. And, and that time frame of that journey was not that long. So here I am 30. Well, I can do it too. And so that really just like launched my obsession into the world of personal finance. And I immediately started taking action with all of the content I was consuming and the information I was learning. Um, and yeah, it was just um, the start of like this next chapter in my life, this next 13 year journey of debt payoff, 13 month journey of debt payoff. Sorry. So um, for the listeners, uh, I will be linking to the podcast that she's referring to, the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. That will be linked in the show notes below. But I just want to go back for a second and I want to point out something that Sarah just said. You said that you were willing to go and work at Costco. Is, is that what you... Yes, I, I ended up finding another job, another OT job that took me on with benefits. But yes, I think I did. I, uh, I'm 99.9% .9 sure I submitted an application to Costco so I could get sick days. <laughs> but, but that see, and that's what I want to hit on, because a lot of times uh, we let pride get in our pride, get in the way of being successful. So mm -hmm. You know, a listener is sitting here and you're listening to someone with a master's degree, an occupational therapist in the middle of a pandemic is willing to put her pride aside and put in applications wherever she can that'll propel her forward, whether it's Costco or anywhere that can be seen and perceived as a not so luxurious job. And I, I hate to say it, but I don't feel like many people at least of your education level are willing to make a sacrifice so severe. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, that was a very kind compliment you just gave me. So thank you. I guess I never really thought about it that way before. Um, I just kind of did what I needed to do to, um, kind of protect myself. Um, but yeah, I mean, I also will say, like, I can't speak to people, to other people with master's degrees and graduate degrees, but among my own peers, like I do lead a very non-traditional work life. I never um, really did that Monday through Friday, nine to five. Like I said before, I was a traveler for a while and then I worked per diem because I'm involved with ski industry stuff. So it didn't seem far-fetched to me to just apply to whatever job I needed so I could get sick days. Um, so as to whether my peers may or may not have made that same decision, most of them were also not in my situation. So I think it's hard to say. Yeah, one thing I would like to add on to that um, from earlier is that you were fully self-aware of your situation 
and you wanted to make it, you wanted to make a change. You decided to make a change and, you know, you started gaining the knowledge, you know, you went on the bigger pockets money podcast, you started looking up YouTube videos and whatnot. And, um, you know, you were taking that knowledge and you were acting upon it. Um, so I think that's really good. I feel like, um, a lot of people, you know, either they're not self-aware of the situation they're in or they are, and they don't want to change it. Um, but you knew, you knew the situation, you knew the position, you know, you immediately took action, started seeking out the knowledge and started, you know, your actions reflect on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. I, um, that is definitely among my friends and family who know me, I am definitely someone who jumps into something with both feet and takes action to whatever I'm learning. So that is a pattern in my life that served me well in this debt payoff journey. So you already kind of alluded to um, how long it took you to tackle this mountain, to eat this elephant one bite at a time. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you recall because I, a lot of times when people make a budget, they can kind of gauge on how long the journey is going to take. Do you remember when you put the numbers out, you put all your debts out and you put all your income out? Do you remember the ballpark of the timeline in which um, this debt payoff was going to take? Um, yes. And I'm chuckling to myself a little bit because this timeline was honestly ever changing um, because at the same time of me um, making this decision to pay off my debt, part of that was, you know, motivated, um, like part of that started during the pandemic. Um, but, oh, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, can you remember? Oh, the timeline. Yes. 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 So, um, the timeline really was ever changing when I first like put my very first post in the bigger pockets money Facebook page. I thought that it would take me maybe two to three years. Um, and as I learned more about personal finance, tracking spending, create, but creating budgets, projecting incomes, all that, um, and from some advice that I had gotten from people who had commented on that very first post, I sure I was able to shorten that timeline down to um, from two to three years down to eighteen months. Um, but then I, um, was getting so burnt out from working in healthcare and that was definitely accelerated by working during a pandemic. I don't think I would have gotten burnt out as fast had COVID not come along. Um, and so then I would create a timeline, but then like, I said, I ended up finding a job where I got sick days. So now I was balancing two OT jobs and they pay different rates because one was per diem and one was full-time status, but uh, I was contracted for 30 hours at full-time status. Um, And they were both very different work environments with different pay rates. So I, as I was dealing with burnout, I was changing the hours worked at each job to try to make it so that I could last a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And so then, um, and then I ended up cutting hours at both jobs because I was just so miserable and then extending my student loan payoff timeline. But then none of those strategies worked. So I quit both jobs and I jumped back into being a travel OT. So I think 
having that timeline is important, but what's also important is checking in with yourself and being self-aware. And I knew for myself at the start of my, of this like very aggressive loan payoff journey, I was already, um, getting burnt out. And so I had to be flexible in my timeline so that I could keep my sanity while I was working, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that kind of rolls over into the next question, which is um, what were the steps you took in order to speed up the process of becoming debt-free? So um, it seems like you've, you know, you made some big life changes. Obviously you were working a lot at both jobs, you know, you were changing the hours to try and accommodate so you didn't feel as burnt out. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about a, a budget. Um, can you elaborate a little bit more on mm -hmm. um, some things you did? Yeah. So the first thing I started doing was tracking my spending. And so the way I did that was I downloaded the app called Mint um, and I put in my like bank account info, credit card info and all that. Um, so I could get an idea, a better idea of where my money was going. Um, and I also started thinking so then I would be reflecting on that each month and saying okay of the things that I'm spending money on um which of these things are things that I really value and want to keep and which can I cut because the faster I pay off these student loans the faster I can take a break from working and kind of reassess what I want to do career-wise um or like w-2 income wise so I got a little extreme which I think anyone listening would have realized because I just paid off so much debt in such a short amount of time. And I wouldn't recommend my extremes for everybody. Um, I think because I was a, I, because I ultimately paid off, um, it was $80,000 of what was student loan debt and car debt. Cause I had purchased a new car a couple years ago. Um, because I knew I could get that paid off in such a short amount of time. I knew that any extreme measures I took with my frugality would only be, um, relatively short lived. It's not like I was having to do these things for three, four, five years. It was only one ish year. Um, so I really cut out. And doing this during a pandemic when so many things are closed also helped. So I really cut out eating out, going out to bars, like spending money on food and all that kind of stuff. And if friends wanted to go to dinner or like go do something, I would invite them over or we would cook or do something a little bit more affordable instead. Um, and so uh, when I was looking at my spending over these months, most of my money was really just going to the essentials, like, you know, food, gas, car insurance, et cetera, et cetera. And I was not spending much money on myself, on like shopping or restaurants or hobbies or whatever. Um, and I guess I also live in an area near the mountains. And so a lot of the stuff I like to do, I already have all the equipment or whatever gear is necessary and therefore don't need to spend more money to go enjoy outside of work activities. Yeah, um, one thing I, I want to point out, um, like you just said, um, a lot of people, um, like, like, like you suggested, you know, some people probably shouldn't go as extreme as you did. Um, but given your situation, you know, you decided that was the best thing for you. 
um, so that way you can, you know, not work those crazy hours, you know, not feel as stressed out. And um, I think it really goes back to, you know, you were, you know, living like no one else. So that way you can yeah. live like no one else. Yeah. And, um, you know, that's just a really big testament to like how much you wanted to pay this debt off, how strict you were, as some people might think that it's really extreme, um, which, you know, it can be at and it can be hard at times. But, you know, for you, you thought that was the best course of action to take. And um, obviously, you know, you, you got that debt knocked off really, really quickly. Um, and now you were able to adjust your lifestyle um, after that. Yeah. So I think that was really, really good. Yeah. And I will also say that part of my fuel for this was that over the course of, you know, these past five or so years working as an OT, I have, I had looked into just switching careers into other industries because I've known for quite some time that I can't, for me, I can't do this job until I'm 65. Granted, we need OTs and PTs and speech therapists so much. It's such a valuable career, but it's not for me in the long term. However, back when I was a traveler, I had refinanced my student loans. And so my minimum monthly payments became really big. And when I was a traveler, it was no problem at all. But when I stopped traveling and um, moved to Reno, um, I found that I could not afford to explore other careers or other industries because they didn't pay enough for me to be able to pay off my student loans. And so that was part of my fuel for this as well, is that if I buckled down for a relatively short amount of time and uh, got these loans paid off and these very large, they were, um, it was almost $1,400 a month were my minimum monthly payments. So once that was gone, it opened up a world of opportunity and freedom for what I wanna do next. That That is amazing. Like. Uh, it, on one hand, it it's not because you had this higher burden of higher monthly payments, but it also gave you the drive to continue to throw heaps and heaps and heaps of money and you hate it more and more and more and wanted to get it out faster and faster and faster. But I do have a question for you because you mentioned um, doing things like inviting friends over and not going out as much. Did your friends know a, the journey you were on paying off your debt or was this something you kept to yourself? Um, so I, uh, they knew, I shared it with them. I, the more I was learning about personal finances, the more I was convinced that we need to start talking about this more. And so this is something that I actively practice in my own life. So they knew exactly what I was doing and why I was doing it. And they were very supportive. Um, and even like talking about incomes with peers. I remember a conversation at a lunch table at work, just kind of talking about personal finances and how we need to compare what our pay rates are with each other. Because when we don't do that, our employer wins. And um, I don't wanna share other people's stories, um, without having asked them first, but um, not all of us were on the same like pay scale, even though we were working similar, the same jobs or, and or had like similar levels of experience. And so I feel really passionately that 
as W-2 employees, we need to talk about money, hourly rates, salaries, all of that more, um, as well as like, hey, I'm inviting you over because I don't want to go out because I'm doing this thing is like, are you supportive of that? Do you want to come over instead? So I was really open with my friends about that. I just, oh my good, I I love, I, I love, love, love everything you just said. First of all, it should be normal for, for coworkers to discuss their salaries. Like mm-hmm. you said, when you don't, you're not, you're not true friends if you know that your friend is being underpaid for their services. That, that's not a true friendship. And it should be normalized. But I think the people who have made it a negative are the corporations. They Right. I agree. I think that's, you know, one of the effects of capitalism is that the corporations and employers have so much power and it's become a cultural norm that we're not supposed to talk about our salary, but for what? Who wins when we don't talk about salary? Our employers, not the employees. Exactly. And then I have one last question on this topic. And uh, did this, did your journey, your story motivate any of your friends to at least try to uh, do the same, get rid um, of it? Yes, it did. And it made me so happy every time I received a text from a friend like, hey, I paid off my car this month. Or hey, like I compared pay rates with someone at this job. And it turns out we're on different pay scales. Like, and I still receive texts like that. And I absolutely love it. And um, so I was traveling and then I moved to Reno and stopped traveling. And then I quit those jobs and started traveling again. And someone on my last travel contract, like they're going to start traveling too. They told me it was because of me that they're going to do that and they want to get their finances in order and they're excited about it and I just love that I'm I've taken what I've learned and I'm inspiring others because um having your personal finances in order just gives you so much power and autonomy in your own life with how many hours a week do you need to work? What kinds of jobs do you want? You have so many choices when your expenses are low, you have no debt, and you have a variety of jobs available to you. I just want to point out that that is such a good thing that I feel like is also not talked about enough that, you know, you you started this journey you know, you told your friends about it. They were very supportive of you. They were glad that you were doing it. And seeing you go through that journey also made them, you know, and motivated them to also do it. And, you know, hearing that, you know, they send you texts, you know, that that they're they're also, you know, moving forward in their journey and seeing how happy you are for them. It's like, you know, these, these are things that like are so important with you know, your friends, your coworker, whatever your circle is, because you're all growing together. And it all started with you just, you know, wanted to take action, wanted to start this journey. And all you had to do was just tell your friends, you know, like, hey, would, do you mind coming over? Because um, I don't want to go out because I'm doing this. And then, you know, it, it sparks that in their minds. And now you are all growing together in this financial journey. Yeah, it's, it's a cool place to be in. That's for sure. So um, now that you are, you know, debt free, you know, you finish that part of your journey financially, 
Um, you know, you've obviously, you know, toned down in your hours, you've changed a lot of stuff life, lifestyle wise. Um, what are some of your short term money goals um, within the next six to 12 months? Yeah, so my first money goal is to max, to open up and then max out a Roth IRA for 2021 and 2022. And for um, for Roth for Roth IRAs, I, I learned about this, you know, somewhere. I don't remember which podcast or, or blog or whatever, but you can um, max out like I can max out my 2021 Roth IRA in February or March if I wanted. It just has to be before I file the 2021 taxes. So I didn't know that. I think I thought that was really helpful. So those are my first two financial goals. Um, and then after that, I want to start um, creating a little bit of a like nest egg or down payment for real estate of some sort. The housing market where I am now is is rough. It's not a buyer's market. So I'm thinking of maybe a, a live and flip or out of state real estate somewhere where I was a traveler or like, you know, buying a self storage unit or something. I don't know what yet, but after I max out my IRAs, I'm going to start um, building a down payment for whatever that real estate venture turns out to be. Uh, real quick, you mentioned something that not many people know about, and we haven't discussed on the podcast yet. Can you define what a live-in flip is? Okay, so a live-in flip um, is when you buy, you know, something real rundown and real raggedy looking. You live in it for two years. In the process, you flip it, um, and if you um, claim that as your residence for two years and then you flip it and then you sell it after two years not before then you don't have to pay I think it's called a capital gains tax which I don't know all the nuances of it I haven't started educating myself on real estate I just know that that's a good thing and I have all of my like real estate podcasts and real estate books lined up for when I get closer to figuring out that area um, but I know that it's uh of course, it's hard work flipping a house, but when you're in a, I'm in a market where um, like turnkey houses where you they're just moving ready. They're they're so expensive in a way that I don't. I want to buy a house to help grow my assets or and or create another income stream if I choose to rent it out. I'm not trying to buy a forever home, so I don't want to buy one of these really expensive. Um, move-in ready houses. I want to buy something that will help launch me in a better financial state. Absolutely. And if there's one thing that I'll say about that big old T word is in taxes, you don't have to understand every single tax in order to be afraid of it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so a live-in flip, I mean, you hit it right on the head. Essentially, um, for those who do not know, if you live in a house and it's your primary residence, for at least two of the last five years, then when you sell it, you do not pay any capital gains tax on it. And capital gains can be anywhere between 10% or 20% of the appreciated value once you subtract things like your renovation costs and all those things. Something I wanted to, to uh, point out or just talk about real quick, because um, you mentioned out-of-state um, real estate investing, if that's an option to you, um, in places where you have traveled before. 
Um, where were you staying when you traveled? Did you stay in like uh, like short term rentals um, or anything of that nature? So I am a solo traveler with no pets. So I usually just rented a room out of somebody's house. And, you know, sometimes it's great. Sometimes it's not great. Then you got to find another living situation. But I found that to be the most, um, that was the cheapest way that I could live so that I could maximize my income. Um, the short term, like rentals or the extended stays at hotels, those tended to be very expensive. Um, and I didn't need to rent out a whole house or a whole apartment because it was just myself. So I really just rented rooms out of random people's houses. It, I, I love that he asked that question because actually my wife is a registered nurse and she really wants to, within the next year or two, to do travel, uh, travel nursing. Yeah, and she should. Travel yeah, well, nurses make so much more than travel therapists and nurses have bachelors. So the market is great for them. Yeah, but she wants me to come with her. So we can't, I don't think we'll survive in just a room in a house, but I'm right. glad you did so, But that. you will also be, you also have a double income there too. It's not like, I, th I think it unlikely as the host of this podcast that you wouldn't be bringing in any money. So therefore your housing budget is likely could be more than mine and you guys could simultaneously work successfully towards whatever financial goals you have. Um, I also know of um, travelers with families who will work, you know, three or four days and then come home for the other three or four days. That's how they navigate that if they're like partners or their kids or whomever can't necessarily come with them. Yeah, my that's definitely something my wife brought up is maybe travel nursing, uh, maybe two hours away from home that if I can't come, but of course we got, we have plenty of time to develop a plan if we want to do that. So yeah, for your, for your short term. So you obviously, you know, you want to have a little, you know, savings cushion. You want to be able to, you know, save up a down payment for real estate and whatnot. Um, where, where do you think you will be in the next five to 10 years? Where, where do you think your financing and your investing journey will be at that time? Yeah, so I think it's a little tricky for me to be specific right now because I don't know what's next job-wise. Um, like there, um, I've applied to a job that um, is full-time and a very decent income now relative to my expenses. So if I get that job, then my trajectory over the next few years is going to be different than if I just continue to work per diem as an OT or if I switch industries. But I was playing around on a compounding interest calculator and I figured out how much money I need to have invested by a certain amount of time to hit what's called Coast Fi, um, which basically means that if you don't like invest or grow your assets any more beyond what you have you're set for retirement and you just need to pay whatever you need enough money to pay for your monthly expenses so um over the next five to ten years i certainly will hit coast five i would love to also hit that financial independence where i don't have to work if i don't want to um but that uh that depends on kind of what what money am I bringing in where um how much you know so it's a little up in the air right now let's shift gears a little bit 
Um, let's say that there are listeners out there that are also occupational therapists or another form of therapy. Uh, you know, they have a master's and they have this mountain, this behemoth of student loan debt that is weighing on them and they don't have any plan. They don't have uh, any motivation to start eating the elephant, as I would say. Mm -hmm. What would you tell them? Well, what if I feel like if they have a huge amount of debt and they're not motivated to pay it off, I would ask them why, because, you know, we could throw all the personal finance content we want at them, but if they're not ready to make that change, then it doesn't matter what we give them. They have to be ready to make a change because if you are in a position where you're in a ton of debt and haven't paid it off yet, there's likely a reason why. And, um, you have to change behaviors to change to fix the problem. Wow. I, I don't think I could have said it any better than that. <laughs> I really don't. Holy cow. You hit it right on the head. Thank I mean, you. personal finance is personal. Yes. And when, when, when someone has an issue and they don't realize it is an issue, they you can't expect them to have the motivation to change. That goes with anything from financial issues to people who have issues with drugs or alcohol. If they don't see it as a right. problem, if no yeah. one lets them know, like, look, this is not normal, then they have no reason to change. And that's what this podcast is about. It's not about shaming people saying, oh, if you have debt, you're stupid. Or if you have, it's about realizing that, if you are hitting these different benchmarks, if you have a bunch of credit card debt and you have no plans on paying them off, or if your car loan is half of your monthly income goes to your car loan, like these are problems. Right. And we're here to help solve the problems. We're not here to shame you for having them. It's all about all of us becoming better. And yes. so- And we're, I think most, I don't remember the percentage, but most Americans are in some form of debt and it's normalized in a way that it takes, I think, um, maybe it triggers the wrong word, but it takes a trigger or a catalyst of some sort for you to realize, hey, like my life doesn't have to be this way. My life could be that way. And that looks so much um, more enjoyable. And with a much, that person looks like they have so much a much higher quality of life and less financial stress. And I actually want that. I don't want what I have anymore. And I think to add on that as well, um, I think it should be a, a lot more normalized to um, self-reflect more often. Yes. Um, as you said, you know, you, you have to be able to, you know, realize the situation you're in and think, is this what I want? Is this what I want to yes. continue going through? Or do I want to make a change and better my life? Yes. Um, so I really think that people need to start self-reflecting a lot more and a lot more often um, just to see, because like you said, you don't, you don't, you're not, you don't know if it's a problem. Um, you know, if you think, you know, that it's okay to have debt and not pay it off or, you know, just pay the minimum and just, you know, keep that for the rest of your life, you know, if you don't think that's a problem, then you won't be able to change. But the more you self-reflect and look at those things and track it, the more you're able to see, well, can I change this? Yes, exactly. And if you are surrounded by people who are like you and that they also have ton of 
um, student loan debt or a ton of credit card debt, then you don't realize that there are other options until you realize there are other options. And then you're like, oh, that's actually way better. <laughs> yeah, it, it goes about who do you surround yourself with? If you surround yourself with people who are in, in massive amount of debts, they're living paycheck to paycheck, and they can't afford a $400 emergency, you know, that is who you're going to become sooner or later, because your net work is your net worth. We say that all the time on the podcast. So you always want to surround yourself with either people who are on the same path as you, or people just above you where you want to get to. Yes. So, and if you don't know any of those people in real life, that they can be your, you know, friends on the podcast that you listen to, or the, the personal finance Facebook groups that you're in, where you're hearing all day long, people telling stories of how they got to where they are. If it's just above you, um, as a way to introduce that influence into your life, if you don't know anyone personally like that. Yeah. And I think that that is super important. And um, I've said that before on a previous episode where, you know, it doesn't have to be your in real life friends. Like you can go online, go on these forums, go in these Facebook groups and these people that have gone through the journey and they've made it or they're still, you know, progressing, you know, if if you send a message to them and just, you know, you, you or, you know, you post on, on on a group page, you know, these people are more than happy to, you know, talk to you or explain things to you, or just, you know, converse in that sense to where, you know, these people, they, they've been through it and they want the best for other people out there that want to do the same thing. So, you know, you can always find somebody on these groups or these forums or anywhere that if they're going through the same journey, then they know what you're going through. They know where you want to be at and they have no problem talking to you or trying to help in any way they can. Totally. And even just um, being an uh, emotional support, um, like I, um, for the beginning of my own like payoff journey um, or the 13 month journey, I guess, like I did meet someone and we were kind of accountability partners because I didn't have anyone in real life who was trying to pay down debt like I was. So I found someone online and it was great. And online kind of provides that because finance, for some reason, finance today is such a taboo topic. You can't ask someone how much they make. You can't ask someone how much money they have in their savings account. You can't ha- ask someone, you know, it, it's it's just a taboo topic. And so having these like Facebook groups and online things like these are people that nine times out of 10, you are never going to meet in real life. So you could, you are a hundred percent, almost a hundred percent anonymous and you can go a hundred percent anonymous and people are still going to support you. They're still going to hold you accountable as long as you're open to that. Mm-hmm. I would like to challenge one of your assertions in the beginning. I think money has always been taboo. I don't think it's just today, but there's so much more personal finance content out in this age of podcasts and YouTube videos and technology that I'm hoping that um, generations that come after us will have money much more normalized in a way than it is for us now. I will accept that challenge because you're absolutely right. You're absolutely 100% (laughs) right. I'll accept that challenge. 
But let's go ahead and transition to the final questions of the show. These are questions that we ask everyone just to, you know, gauge going forward what you plan on doing and just where your mindset is at when it comes to finances and other things. Mm-hmm. So as you said before, you know, there, there are things that you, you want to be at at the end of your journey. Um, everybody has their own definition of financial peace or financial independence. Um, what is your definition? What, what are you looking to get out of the end of this journey? Yeah, so I think I, I two things. The first is that I am lucky and that I already know that I don't, you know, there's this big fire community, financial independence, retire early. And I have mentioned the financial independence part. And that's something that I really want. But I already know from being a traveler and having been able to take off weeks between contracts, I don't have any desire to retire early. I don't have any desire to stop working. Um, But I do have a strong desire for financial independence because of the time freedom that it gives you. And that is something that's so important to me and that I value above all else. And that even now, I am taking a month off work and could take off more if I wanted. Um, And I'm still um, carrying over some of the frugality that I had in my debt payoff journey because I value the time freedom more than just like, oh, now I can eat out at all the restaurants I want. Well, I don't actually want to do that because the cost of that is less time freedom. So I love that because I have so many hobbies and interests that I love to explore. And I have friends and family kind of all over the country. So I want to be able to go visit them more frequently on holidays or for big events. Um, And I want my time to feel like my own. So that's really what my FI, my financial independence journey, like why that's so important to me and what I'm working so hard for. So I've noticed a trend throughout the podcast uh, with this interview in that you keep saying that throughout this journey, you got burned out, you know, you worked your butt off and you know, you, you, you're rightfully so, but even after all the burnout, you're, you still say like, I'm not just going to hang it up. I'm not just going to go and lay on my couch for the next 40 years. Yeah. That's not what I want to do. And I don't think that's what humans are made to do. I agree. We go through cycles where we're tired and where we need a break, but after that break, only so long into the break that you're like, okay, I need to go do something. Yes. Yes, exactly. And it just, it sounds like to me that you enjoyed the journey more than getting to the finish line. Yes, because so um, there were quite a few personal finance podcasts and books that I listened to and read, but one of the books that I read was really quite influential for me in terms of along this financial journey that we're all on, on our different paces, make sure that you have a great quality of life along the way. Because what the heck is the point of being extremely frugal? And then maybe by the end of your journey, you're a multimillionaire. And now you're just twiddling your thumbs because you don't have interests. You don't have hobbies. You maybe alienated some friends because of some um, whatever, like extreme frugality you had. And that's not a quality of life 
that I want. And so I was really making sure to check in with myself along the start of this journey that we'll say started uh, like that November, October of um, 2020, and that I wasn't sacrificing my quality of life or my mental health for the sake of these financial goals alone. Yeah, I think, you know, the same drive that gets people to financial peace is the same drive that won't let you just stand by and just stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I've, I've noticed that when talking to many successful, wealthy people, you know, there, there's, it seems like there's never a finish line. Every time you get close to the finish right. line, yes, it always moves. It always moves. So if it's always moving and we all know that it's going to be always moving, then that's why uh, we all need to prioritize a good quality of life, surrounding yourself with good friends, good family members, good people, um, in a way that you, when we're all old farts in our nursing homes, we can look back over our lives and be really happy with the life that we've lived. Absolutely. So that brings us to the next question. Um, and this is kind of where you are in your, your life cycle, in your journey, um, you've, you've paid off all of your debts. Now it's time to start actually building wealth, not only for you, but for your kids and their kids. So what is something that if, if someone has no clue where to start in building their wealth, where would you tell them to get started? Um, one little nuance I'd like to add in, I actually don't know if I want to have kids. So, um, maybe my wealth is going to my nieces and nephews. I don't know, but, um, uh, I don't know if I'm going to have kids. And I think in our society, while we need to start normalizing money talks, I think we also need to stop assuming that everyone wants kids. Cause I think that could, it doesn't impact me, but it can be a touchy subject for people in general. Um, but uh, sorry, I got distracted. Can you repeat that last part of that question again? No, no, and you're right. That was a that was a pretty silly assumption. I mean, there are people who don't. But also children. normal, like that's such a normal question to ask. So in light of me advocating for sharing personal finance knowledge, I also advocate for other views, um, such as we need to stop assuming everyone's going to have kids all the time because I'm a millennial and my uh, generation is saying loud and clear, like the birth rates in my generation are declining and we're having kids later. And so it's still... Um, um, so normal to say, oh, like, when are you going to get married? When are you going to have kids? Blah, blah, blah. But my generation's just pushing back all of those timelines. Absolutely. But, but the question was, uh, if someone is starting their wealth building journey, yeah. for whatever reason it is, um, where, where would you tell them to start? Um, so from a knowledge standpoint, I would tell them, to start with my favorite book is JL Collins' Simple Path to Wealth. He writes a book geared towards teaching his daughter how to build wealth and be financially independent and stable and successful in her own life. And I think because he geared it towards his daughter, it's written in a way that's very accessible um, and um, 
easily approachable and easy to consume information that just makes sense. Some of these really popular personal finance books um, that have been around for years and years and years, I think can come across as a little bit tone deaf, a little bit judgmental, a little bit condescending. And I don't think I think JL Collins did an amazing job writing his book. So I think that's really important, whether you read it or audiobook, whatever. But you have to start knowing what you don't know. And I think that's a really good place to start. And then from um, like something like a practical skill, I think you need to start tracking your spending because you can't project debt payoff timelines. You can't create budgets. You can't do any of those next steps until you know at least where your money is going. And if you start tracking your spending and it opens your eyes to things that you might be, oh, I didn't realize I'm spending so much money on X category, like this is a judgment-free zone. Don't judge yourself. It doesn't matter where your money has been going. It matters that you're aware of where it's going now so that you can start planning what you want to do with that income going forward. Yeah, it's great you say that, the tracking your spending piece, because um, Rachel Cruz from the Ramsey team, she has a saying that is, it's just phenomenal. And I, I do have a, an episode about budgeting coming out soon. So it's going to teach people how to budget, how to prioritize and things like that and how to track your spending. But the saying that she has is a budget gives you permission to spend. Yes. So once you put it on the paper and you and your, if you have a spouse or whoever, you're creating the budget with, once you guys agree that this money is being allocated for this, it gives you permission to spend that money. So, totally. you know, a budget doesn't have to just be cut dry, you know, everything you absolutely need to survive, food, water, shelter. You can put, you can track the spending of things like clothing or uh, vacations and things like that. The, the problem is when people say budget, they feel restricted. And it and should not be restricted. I totally agree with you. And even though I was so frugal, I did create budget categories for myself. Like I love to read. So I built in a budget category for books so that I could allow myself to spend money on that. So I think it's important to create sustainable budgets that you're not sitting there at the end of the month being really unhappy with a really unsustainable budget that you're then just going to fail in following because it's not working for you. And I think that also goes hand in hand with what you said earlier about, you know, don't lose yourself, you know, make sure you yeah. have those hobbies, make sure you still have things that you love, don't just completely engulf yourself in the, you know, financial, you know, journey, you know, paying off debt and whatnot. So I think that is perfect. And, you know, those hobbies that you love, you know, put a little budget aside for those things that you love. So that yeah. way you don't lose, you know, sight of that. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. So um, with that being said, you know, as something that, you know, your advice for somebody just getting started, um, what is something you would tell other people uh, to not do um, in the process of building wealth? What is something that they should avoid doing? Yeah, I think, um, I think if you need to spend a lot of money on something like a car, like if you need to make big purchases, 
and you've already started your wealth building journey, whether that's debt payoff or debt payoff and like investing or growing assets. If you find yourself in a position where you need to make a big purchase, I think you really need to like run a pros and cons list and a cost benefit analysis to figure out, okay, how much am I willing to put towards whatever this purchase is? Um, I think that's really important. I 100% agree with that. Um, uh, so Scott Trench has a book called Set for Life. Those who do not know who Scott Trench is, he is a co-host of the Bigger Pockets Money podcast. And in his books, book Set to Life, Set for Life, I'm sorry, he outlines the, I guess, let's say average amount that Americans spend on different categories, such as housing, um, transportation, and food. And one thing that he really does a great job of illustrating is half of the an American's budget on average consists of your housing, your transportation, and your food. So if you look at that and you realize that the other half is everything else in life, that the biggest cuts that you can make in your budget are your housing, your food, and your transportation. A mm-hmm. part of that is um, a car payment. If you can pay cash for a car and now you only have to worry about things like insurance, maintenance, and gas, that's going to substantially lower the amount of money going out. And the more money you keep, the more money you can build. And the more money that you can build, the wealthier you will become in the long run. Well said. Thank you. But that takes us to the last, second to last question, I should say. Are you ready, Sarah? (laughs) yes bring it on if you can ask anyone dead or alive one question who would it be and what would you ask them I would ask my grandfather who's passed away to just share his life story Um, my oldest siblings are seven and nine years older than me which meant that my grandparents were like older compared to my peers' grandparents. And um, he just had such an incredible life and lived during such an incredible time that I wish that I could talk to him more about his experiences um, when he was still alive. But I was so young and, you know, didn't think to do that or wouldn't have understood or really respected what he said. Yeah. And, you know, that I think that is like, it really, really sucks when as children, everybody's putting us on game. They're all telling us all the right things to do. They're telling us all the mistakes they made and it goes in one ear and it goes out the other, mm-hmm. at least for me personally. Like I, so that is definitely something I can respect and, yeah. and go along with. Last question, Sarah, where can people find out more about you? Um, so they can find me on Instagram at wealth underscore care underscore. One thing we haven't talked about is that I actually created a financial coaching business for healthcare providers or geared towards healthcare providers. So my business is called Wealthcare. That's the Instagram handle. Um, my website where I share a bit more about my money story is um, sarahedlin.com and my email address is also on that website as well. Now, Sarah, how are you going to let us get through this whole conversation and not even mention this wealth care business? Do you mind telling us a little bit more about it? 
Um, yeah, so I initially started a personal finance blog, but then realized that I wanted to um, like tangibly help my peers um, more than just letting them passively read blog posts. So um, I created an LLC um, and I have I created a financial coaching program um, and I had beta clients and everything. And then I launched and I've got a handful of clients that are, you know, making really great progress. But um, a lot of the personal finance content that I've consumed, it, none of it none of it is finding its way towards my healthcare provider peers. I don't know why that is. And I really wanna change that because so many of us are so burnt out and burnt out healthcare providers provide poor patient care. That's just a product, a, a consequence of burnout. And so obviously healthcare providers are so needed. PTs, OTs, speech therapists, social workers, like these are really needed careers, but burnout negatively impacts all the patients. So if we can flip the script and we can have healthcare providers who are there more by choice and are not feeling trapped in their jobs and are not feeling overwhelmed, then they're providing better care for their patients. And um, I really want to help my peers get to the point where I am, where if I do choose to go back to OT, it's because it's my choice. And I will be providing better care because I'm not exhausted at the end of every day, mentally and emotionally from the job. That is amazing. You are doing <laughs> amazing things, Sarah. I just want to tell you that. Thank you. <laughs> But that we're going to wrap it up on that note. Um, if you guys want to find more about Sarah, I will have her Instagram and her website linked in the show notes below. You guys can check it out. Make sure you guys go check out her content. Um, is there anything else that you want to say before we get up out of here, Sarah? No, I think we touched on, um, touched on everything. Yeah. What about you, Jonathan? Got any final words? No, I'm just I'm just blown away. This was a very, very good episode. This was a very a lot of knowledge that came out of you, a lot of determination, a lot of emotions and a lot of things just going on that I feel like anybody that's, you know, in college, you know, going through this financial journey or, you know, just starting out or becoming aware. I mean, this is probably the perfect person, the perfect example I mean, you, you can't get better than that. Thank you. And if anyone wants to reach out to me with questions or they want to have a conversation, I would absolutely love to help, to help anyone wherever they're at. I think more of us need to have our personal finances in order in a way that makes our lives so much better. So please use me as a resource. I am happy to help anyone who is asking. That's just amazing. Okay, Sarah, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to come and chat with us. And hopefully we can have you back on the podcast pretty soon to talk more about not only your business, but also get an update on what, what's been going on in your life. Yeah, I'd love to come back. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow, 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 guys. So what you just heard was Sarah's story from coming back from $134,000 of student loan debt to now building her, 
you know, way up to financial peace, financial independence. Jonathan, what did you think about this interview, man? Man, this was a really good one. I mean, from the way she was talking about, you know, how she, you know, was self-aware, you know, and decided to take action on it, you know, gain the knowledge to, you know, how frugal she was, you know, trying to keep a budget, all the steps that she was taking to even, you know, talking to her friends and, you know, her whole group, you know, they were motivating each other, you know, she got her, her other coworkers and friends into the financial journey as well. I mean, everything she did was so spot on given her situation that it is just very inspirational for all the people that are in college or, you know, people that, that are in the healthcare industry that still have massive student debt. I a hundred percent agree with you, man. The, her, her, her story isn't just an up and up and up. She talks about all of the roadblocks she's hit with having different jobs and being willing to put her pride aside and go put an application at Costco. Imagine going to college for six years, obtaining a master's degree, and then putting in an application at Costco just to do what you have to do to be successful. I mean, it's a great demonstration of what people who want to be successful are willing to do, man. Of course. And you just have to make those sacrifices. You have to be self-aware. You have to figure out what things you have to change in your life and you have to take action on it. And she was willing to make those sacrifices because that's how much she really wanted to pay off that debt. That's how much she really wanted to be financially independent. And it just speaks volume. You know, her journey just speaks so much volume in everything that she did. And, um, you know, it definitely paid off for her. Absolutely, man. I couldn't agree more. But you think it's time to get out of here, Jonathan? Oh, yeah. Remember, guys, this is Gen- the Gen Z Money Podcast. And always remember, you're only as secure as your ability to perform. So spend your life accumulating assets that can perform for you. Deuces, guys. See you. Even if my jokes turn funny My tongue tied up on it Then I don't need to speak a single